This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Running out of time and need inspiration for a last-minute Christmas present? Well, why not give your friends or family the chance to spend time with some of the world's most brilliant minds with the Intelligence Square Plus gift subscription. For $14.99 a month, you can watch live-streamed events with some of the biggest minds in the world, ask your questions, vote in motions, and you can watch all of our events for the last 20 years back on demand, ad-free, whenever you like. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in our episode description and get yourself a gift subscription for a loved one today. You don't have to worry about delivery delays with this one. It will land in their inbox as soon as you wish. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on today's special 12 Books of Christmas episode, we have three great clips and we'll be hearing from a Pulitzer Prize winner as well as a Nobel Prize winner. But first, let's dive into the journey of humanity with Oded Galor, who has some radical ideas about human progress. These are condensed versions of the full episodes. Just go to the archive for the full-length episodes. Here's our host, journalist and broadcaster, Kamal Ahmed, with more. Uh, thank you so much and welcome. This is, this is the first in-person Intelligence Squared event I've done for a long time, so it's so lovely. Thank you so much for coming out for very good reason. Oded Galore, Professor of Economics at Brown University. As we all know, um, Oded is behind, is the founding thinker uh, behind the idea of the unified growth theory, and we'll get into that in a moment. And he's distilled much of his superb academic work and writing into this uh, volume, The Journey of Humanity. But maybe I could just kick off with looking at the world today, and you have said that the book is fundamentally optimistic, and I suppose rather quizzically, I might just ask you why. Yes, so let me clarify first that it's fundamentally optimistic, but not fundamentally naive. And um, it is based on observations that I made over the past uh, three decades about the journey of humanity a journey that is originated in Africa 300,000 years ago and lasts to the present. And this journey is, uh, is full of anecdotes about major catastrophes and major devastating effects that are affecting the human population. And nevertheless, it is quite apparent that the human species is recovering from each of these episodes with great resolve and with greater strength. If we think about, for instance, the Black Death that took place in the 14th century, 40% of the European population is devastated by the Black Death, but ultimately, the implications of the Black Death are not long-lasting. The human population is recovering, and ultimately, as I said, with greater strength than what existed earlier. If we think about atrocities in the context of uh, the, 12th, the 20th century, World War I, or World War II, naturally tens of millions of people were decimated by these events. And nevertheless, when we think about them with a wider perspective, it appears that they are naturally huge tragedies for the people that uh, went through them, but ultimately, if we think about the grand arc of human history, it doesn't appear that the human species is being derailed from any of these events. Or if we think about other events that are perhaps more 
uh, in line with what we experienced in the context of COVID-19, the Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920. Again, major devastation, but ultimately the human population recovered from these uh, episodes uh, without major difficulties. So yes, I mean, the current events are horrific, devastating, but nevertheless, I think that uh, the current state of gloom is sort of uh, based on inappropriate perspective that uh, the contemporary population uh, has about human existence. I mean, yes, these are terrible events, but ultimately, it appears that the human species has the ability to recover from all these tragedies. It's a really helpful way of framing it. I'd like to start off um, our talk about the process of coming to your conclusions. You're an economist, um, but you've, you've really lent into the social science aspect of that and looking back over this huge arc, can you talk us through the academic process before we get to what it is you discovered? Right, so it would be appropriate to define me as an interdisciplinary researcher. So I'm a specialist in the field of economic growth, but at the same time, I develop great expertise in the field of macro history, in the field of cultural evolution, in the field of demography, and in the mathematical field of discrete dynamical systems. And over my career, I was fascinated by the importance of initial conditions in the context of individuals and ultimately in the context of nations. Namely, whether the place where you were born is going to affect your livelihood in the very long run, whether in fact initial conditions are a fate, or whether people can defy their initial conditions and ultimately flourish regardless of these initial conditions. And over time, I was basically fascinated by the, the vast inequality that is present across the globe. And I was interested in understanding the origins of this vast inequality. And in the course of this uh, investigation, I develop different uh, theories and different mathematical tools that ultimately enable me to understand the process of development in, in its entirety. So part of the achievement of unified growth theory was basically a better understanding of how few individuals that resided in Africa 300,000 years ago are permitting us to understand how humanity marched forward in a way that ultimately brought about the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago and the industrial revolution about 250 years ago and ultimately the prosperity that we experience in, in today's world. And at the same time, how this march of humanity led into this enormous inequality as we see it across the globe. So, I had a particular, I mean, I had an intellectual journey that was corresponding, if you wish, to the journey of humanity. And this intellectual journey allowed me ultimately to develop, as I said, the tools and the conceptual framework to understand the journey of humanity in its entirety. I spoke to um, Yervil Noah Harari about his um, way of working in, mm -hmm. in a, similar, um, a similar way. Now, a question I put to him, and I'd like to put it to you as well, Adet, is obviously the data sets. Economists work with data sets. The data sets to understand pre-industrial society are thin. The evidence um, has to be mixed with forms of, maybe assumption is not quite the right word, but sometimes um, pushing the logic of a situation in some way. How do you manage to smooth the notion of the data sets for the last 100 years, 150 years, maybe 200 years at the outside are relatively solid and become more solid over time. But pre that, aren't you slightly in a fog and you have to lean on heuristics and assumption in a way that could bend the conclusions you come to? 
So, so that's, uh, that's an important observation, and indeed, I mean, when we think about solid data sets, and uh, naturally this will lead us into the 20th century, the 21st century. Um, today, I mean, with, uh, with archival work, we can generate uh, very solid data for the 18th century, the 17th century. And before that, we do need to, to rely on uh, evidence that are perhaps more scattered, but nevertheless very reliable. And the pattern that I'm depicting, namely that over most of human existence, we do not see much progress in the context of living standards, is based on solid evidence in the sense that I cannot say that standard of living was such that income per capita was $400 per person per year or $1,000 per person per year, but I can certainly say with, with firm um, evidence that over most of human existence we see that living standards are fluctuating within a very narrow band, very close to the subsistence level. This can be defined, and this can be established. And then at a certain point in the course of the past 200 years, we see this tremendous increase in living standards, where living standards measured by income per capita is increasing 14-fold within 200-year period. So the debate is whether it is 14-fold today versus perhaps half a fold over 300,000-year period, or whether, in fact, it's 14-fold versus no progress whatsoever. But the delta is so big precisely. that so it's you know you precisely. have the authority of precisely. that. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the um, uh, unified growth theory. So you've basically nailed the coffin down on Malthus's theories around population and growth. So take us back to what you describe as the subsistence level when we could still all believe in the Malthusian uh, model that growth led to population growth, led to over-demand, lack of supply, Populations decline, on you go with your subsistence level uh, existence. Take us on a journey from there and what broke that model, which presumably, as you suggest, had been working rather well for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Right. So let me take a step back and basically phrase it in the context of one of the mysteries that are being resolved in the, in the book. So the book is revolving around two fundamental mysteries that were surrounding human existence. The first one I defined as the mystery of growth, namely what brought about this dramatic transformation in living standards in the past 200 years after literally 300,000 years of near stagnation. And the second one is the mystery of inequality, namely what brought about this vast inequality in the wealth of nations. So in the context of the first mystery, that's relevant for your question, unified growth theory and the first part of the book are in fact trying to develop a coherent unified structure that in fact will show us why is it the case that over 99.9% .9 of human existence Societies are in a state of stagnation, or if you wish, in a state of Malthusian stagnation. And then ultimately, quite spontaneously, we see the emergence of sustained economic growth. So naturally, this is a very difficult problem from a mathematical viewpoint, but it's very interesting conceptually. Let me try to walk you through the argument that is raised in the book. So, in the context of the Malthusian world, what we see is this interaction between the size of the population, the adaptation of the population, and the level of technology. So since the emergence of anatomically modern human in Africa 300,000 years ago, people are innovating. They're not innovating at a pace that we are innovating today, but they're innovating. 
One stone tool is replacing another stone tool. Progress is not made daily, but it is made over the, over the centuries and over the millennia. Now, when technology is advancing during this period, it permits people to have more resources. And when they have more resources, more of their children survive. And in addition, they can, in fact, have more children than otherwise. So then, despite this progress in technology, resources per person are declining back to their initial position. And throughout the course of human history, we see this reinforcing interaction. The level of technology determines the size of the population, but the size of the population in turn affects the rate of technological progress. More people, more potential innovators, more demand for their innovations, more technological progress. In addition, technological progress is changing the technological landscape in which people operate and consequently induces human adaptation. And human adaptation is important because this adaptation permits further technological progress. So in the course of human history, we see these wheels of change, technological progress, population size, and population adaptation that are reinforcing one another. The process is very slow. At any point in time, the rate of technological progress is negligible. The rate of population growth is negligible. The rate of human adaptation is negligible. But over 300,000 year period, we move gradually from stone tool technology to a steam engine technology in the eve of industrialization. And if we think about the size of the human population, despite this Malthusian stagnation, what we see is that the size of the world population 12,000 years ago, in the eve of the agricultural revolution, is about two and a half million people. And then, within 12,000 year period, the size of the world population in the midst of industrialization is about one billion people. Namely, during this epoch of stagnation, the size of the population in the world increases 400-fold and the technological level is moving from stone tool technology to steam engine technology. So, in the course of human history, technological progress becomes faster and faster and faster, up to a point in which the technological landscape changes so rapidly that individuals and parents realize that in order to allow their children to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment, they must start to invest in the education of their children. But naturally, resources are limited. How do you educate your children with an income that is very close to subsistence? You cannot economize on your own consumption, and as a result of it, you economize on the number of children. You have less children than before, okay? And this is critical because this frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. So in the course of industrialization, technological progress accelerates, human capital starts to be formed, people start to educate their children, fertility starts to decline, and it is the decline in fertility that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. And consequently, we have this holy triangle technological progress, human capital formation, and the decline in fertility that are permitting the world to sail into the sustained growth regime. What do you get the person who has everything? How about time with some of the world's most brilliant minds? Intelligence Squared Plus gift subscriptions at $14.99 per month give access to our entire video library as well as live streamed events every week. You can pick the length of the subscription at the checkout and best of all, there's no delivery time. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com today or click the link in our episode description to get yourself a gift subscription for a loved one today. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now we're going to an Intelligence Squared online event from early January. We were joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Andrea Elliott, who spent nearly a decade reporting for the New York Times on the life of Dasani Coates, a child living in a Brooklyn homeless shelter as New York City's homeless crisis was exploding. That journey is now a book, Invisible Child, and to help tell the story of survival and hope in New York City, Andrea was joined by prize-winning novelist and journalist Alex Preston. Andrea, it's an enormous pleasure to speak to you again, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I couldn't be happier to be in dialogue with you. So, So this is, at its heart, the story of one child in New York City. And I wonder if you could maybe start by introducing us to Dasani and and her extraordinary family. Yes. So I met Dasani standing outside of a homeless shelter. I was there as a reporter for the New York Times in October of 2012. And she walked out of the shelter with her siblings and her mother. And she just immediately struck me as a kind of electrifying presence. She had a lot to say. She was rambunctious. She was uh, just a very spirited child. She was kind of just exudes, she at that time, sort of popping with enthusiasm and promise. She was on the honor roll. She was the fastest sprinter on the block. She had big dreams and a big agenda, it seemed. And what wasn't immediately apparent in just engaging with her was how hard her her actual life was. And it was the contrast of those two things, of her huge aspirations for herself and the reality of being crammed in one room with nine family members, often struggling with food insecurity, hunger is the more blunt way to put it, mice running around her room, constant parenting burdens placed upon her because her parents were overwhelmed. It just, it was stunning to me that she could kind of balance those two things. I don't even think it was about balancing. It's that those two facts were just a part, they coexisted inside of her and they were a part of who she was, that she wanted more, she wanted to transcend. And yet this was her life and she was showing up for it. And uh, and it was in a city that was so wealthy, right? Well, that's that's one of the things. But Andrea, maybe just give us a little flavor of, uh, of, of the book. 
Okay, I'm going to read you a passage that comes about three quarters of the way through. This is a book that follows Dasani as she grows up. So it, I was in her life for eight years with her family and saw a lot of ups and downs. She came of age in that time. And uh, one of the most difficult things about being deeply poor in New York City is that you have to survive all these government systems that can be generous and can also be very punishing. And so I'm going to show you a quick photograph. This is Dasani and her closest sister of the seven siblings, Aviana, in the background. They were both named for bottled water, Aviana, Dasani. They were born 11 months apart and they were just like twins. This was taken in 2012 when I began. So Andrea, just just tell us exactly how old Dasani is in in the photo there. In the photo, she is eleven, and her her sister behind her, Aviana, is ten. And um, they had they consider themselves quote unquote full blood sisters. They had this you know they shared the same pillow, the same mattress, the same dresser drawer. They had secret handshakes. They were it was that unspoken language of siblings that they had. And they were, but they're almost like twins, aren't they? They they describe themselves they as twins. Them, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. They thought of themselves as twins, and they did not consider themselves as separate individuals, as far as I could tell until Child Protection Services intervened and separated all the children from their parents because the parents were being accused of providing inadequate housing to the children. It wasn't that they were abusing them. And these kids were placed in a foster care system that did give them housing, but did not give them the thing they always had at home, which was love. Two years after that, so five years after this photograph was taken, they're practically, their, their bond, which was always so deep, is on the verge of being broken. And this is the scene. Dasani's in a foster home in Staten Island, a different part of New York. Forever family, writes Dasani on December 3rd, 2017, above a photograph on Facebook showing three new friends. They are throwing gang signs. Dasani, now 16, knows that her estranged sister Aviana will be rankled by this. To write forever family is Dasani's way of saying the opposite, that nothing is forever, not even family, that one's sister can be replaced as easily as one's own blood, which is not thicker than water, as their mother used to say. In the photograph, Dasani wears a red bandana in allegiance to the bloods. That's a gang. One family is poised to take the place of another. Dasani has not seen Aviana in over a year. They last exchanged texts five months ago but Dasani knows how to break her sister's silence. Precisely two hours and 35 minutes after Dasani posts the Forever Family photo, Aviana appears on Facebook, clicking a digital hand. The hand waves at her sister. Dasani waves back. Hey, sis, writes 15-year-old Aviana. A feverish correspondence follows. They agree to meet the following weekend at a subway station in Queens. They are both nervous. So Aviana sends detailed instructions. Dasani must take the A train to Broadway Junction, then the J train to Queens, to the last stop, get off, go upstairs, and then meet me at the turnstile. Queens is not Dasani's turf. She asks for the name of the station, which worries Aviana. Nothing can be left to chance. Instead, they settle on Broadway Junction, which is impossible to miss. Got you, sis, Aviana writes, on the afternoon of December 10th, Aviana leaves her foster home in Queens, and Dasani leaves her foster home in Staten Island. They check their phones. I'm on the train, writes Aviana. Me too, writes Dasani. By 1.28 p.m., they are minutes apart. Both trains arrive, and the sisters dismount. They cannot find each other. Aviana writes that she is here. Dasani writes that she is coming upstairs. Aviana writes that she is coming down. No, Dasani writes, she is coming up. Where are you at? Dasani asks. Aviana is at the turnstile. Come to the escalators, writes Dasani. The thread stops. The station stops. Two sisters are crashing into each other. They have no words. They hold each other like refugees who have crossed an unseen border. Everyone is watching. Mind your own damn business, Dasani manages to shout from her sister's impossible clutch. She cannot breathe like this. No one hugs like this. You're holding me too tight. Let me go. Let me go. No one lets go. They stand like this for minutes. They already know their next move. The A train will come, taking them to downtown Brooklyn. The train is coming, the very train that their grandmother used to clean. It pulls into the station. The doors open.
Oh, I mean, it's just so lovely and so beautifully written. You know, this is the thing that it is a book where the beauty of the prose is one of the things, one of the numerous pleasures that you get from it. And and I wonder how important that was for you, because it's difficult, isn't it, that it needs to be beautifully written, but you also don't want it to be about you and you don't want it to be about the style. And so how did you think about the voice with which you would tell Dasani's story? I struggled with it for a long time. And in the early days, and I wrote this book over the course of those years and then rewrote. I, I don't consider myself a writer. I say I'm a rewriter. <laughs> I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, rewrite until it starts to feel like it's hitting the right notes. I read my stuff aloud and I read it to Dasani and to Aviana and to others as I was going. And sometimes they would say, I don't know, maybe it's more like it was this or, and I relied very heavily on video and audio, a lot of tech, which is ironic given I'm a complete Luddite myself, but I don't rely on memory. And so a lot of it was, you know, hundred, more than a hundred hours of video recordings and dozens of hours of audio recordings to ensure that that it was accurate. But at the same time, what I wanted, and I think this is where literary pursuits and journalism come together, is I wanted people to feel transported into the story, to feel moved by it so much so that that it, maybe it felt like fiction, but then they were con constantly reminded it was real. And so they had to care about something that was really happening in this world. But the voice is hard and I didn't want it. I didn't want it to feel showy. I wanted my favorite writers are spare and they're very economical and they get out of the way of the story. So maybe for our international audience, those who, who maybe don't know what's going on in New York City and and really this this crisis of homelessness there. Maybe you could just situate the kind of social backdrop, the political backdrop a little more for us. Yes, there's a huge affordable housing crisis in the United States. Less than 3% of Americans have access to federal programs, the federal government's programs that are things like public housing, Section 8 vouchers, the things that can enable you to live free of the stress of the rent burden, which is when so much of your income goes to paying the rent. And uh, evictions have been a longstanding problem, of course. So we see homelessness taking different forms across the country. You've probably seen some of the news stories about the tent encampments in cities in California, where the weather allows for that. In New York City, it's a little different because due to lawsuits over several decades, there is a right to shelter. And so people have a legal right to be sheltered and the city must provide shelter if you can prove that you're homeless. And that creates, you know, a huge shelter system, but it also is not a, a welcome, a friendly system. It's a quite a punitive system. People, it's supposed to be temporary. And so in that system, of hundreds of shelters. At the time that I met Jasani, there were over 22,000 children living in those shelters. I mean, that's the kind of crowd that would fill a football sta stadium, just to give you a, a visual. It's a huge population and it's a very insecure life. It's a life of constant displacement, of being uprooted and put in another. One of the greatest descriptions I ever came across, it's actually in the book, was by an academic named Mindy Fullilove, who describes serial displacement as root shock, is mm. what happens mm. to a plant when you take it out of its root, with, oh, pull it away from its roots and put it in new soil repeatedly. It experiences something called root shock. And I think that this is the kind of tragedy that we see unfolding with the homeless children in this country is everyone knows how stressful it is to move. So imagine just constantly having to move, constantly having to adjust to new sounds, smells, a, a different train station, a, a different classroom. It's yeah, yeah. really hard to thrive in that environment. Is there a, a, a sort of economic basis for this? I mean, uh, it feels like this is something that is more serious now than it was. Is, is, is that because of house prices? Is it but what is causing it to be so acute at this point in time? I think it's been building for decades, you know, so the book walks through some of this history. I don't think it's a, a new problem. 
it is just, in fact, when I began looking for a child to write about, I wasn't looking for a homeless kid. I was looking for a poor kid because I was stunned by the statistic that one in five children were growing up poor in America, which is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation in the world is the superpower. One of the, you know, place that prides itself on, you know, on uh, all the things that the American so-called dream is supposed to be about. Yet we have one fifth of our future workforce growing up at such a disadvantage that they are way more likely to wind up incarcerated, uh, pregnant as teens, dropping out of school, all of the markers that lead to really costly problems down the line. And so I was shocked by that. And I wanted to find a kid and I started poking around and I saw that there was this huge, it was like a buried news story that there were these 22,000 kids. It wasn't front and center. It wasn't. And to me, that was just also shocking. Like, what, why isn't this on the front page all the time? I mean, it's stunning. So I think it's the problem that's in plain sight that we all get used to. And and it, it, in, in terms of economics, I mean, I think it is about the incredibly costly reality of housing and how hard it is for people to become home, homeowners when they don't have great wages or benefits in a country that, you know, where the livable, there isn't a livable wage for many working class folks. And so, so much goes to just staying housed. And that's a really tenuous situation. So talk to me about when you found Dasani, when you decided it would be her story. And then this was first a series of of newspaper articles that then expanded to become this incredible book. So I started following Dasani and her family's life, uh, which was a hard sell because it always is to immerse, to say, let me just be around you for, I don't know how long, maybe a few months. <laughs> I want to do a deep portrait of what it is to be struggling with these problems. Can you let me inside? Most sane people, and they were among them, would say, no, why would I allow my privacy to be invaded? But they read my work and I'd been doing this for a long time and in a community that they cared a lot about, which was the Muslim immigrant community in the United States. I had embedded in a mosque for six months. I had done a number of deep dives, as we call them. And I think they saw that I was serious and that it wasn't going to be a superficial treatment of their story. And they believed in the power and the importance of their story. And I think that that is that does tend to be what convinces people a lot of the time to let you in, that they have something that's very, very valuable to society, that if they were to allow that story to be told, they could see potentially affect change. This, the series ran and it did affect change. 400, more than 400 children were removed by the city from substandard shelters and those shelters were forever closed to children. So that was an immediate sign that, you know, their story had power. I just wanted to keep following them because what was clear to me, even though this was a 30,000 word, five part series that constituted a pretty deep look by newspaper standards, to me, it was only scratching the surface that there was so much more to learn by being with them about everything, about our nation's history, about the way that systemic racism plays out on the ground about all these systems that they were interacting with and how those systems work. And also just about something that I know isn't of interest to you, Alex, because we've talked about this, but you know, how do you define what thriving is? What is mm. it, what does mm. it mean to transcend? To round up today's 12 Picks of Christmas episode, we're finishing off with a conversation with Orhan Pamuk, one of the world's and Turkey's best-loved novelists. He spoke to literary critic Merve Emre about what it's like to live through a pandemic and how literary fiction can bring to life the various emotions from boredom to anger that come to the fore at a time of plague. I'm very excited to introduce our guest Orhan Pamuk, novelist, screenwriter, academic, and recipient of the 2006 Nobel Prize in Literature. His work has sold over 13 million books in 63 languages, making him Turkey's best-selling writer. He has also convinced me to have a beer at 1 p.m. in the afternoon to make our conversation. Maybe I should say it didn't take me too much to convince you. <laughs> 
It took him very little to convince me to have a beer at one in the afternoon so that our conversation will be as lively as possible. His books include My Name is Red, The Museum of Innocence, and his new book, Nights of Plague, a novel set on a fictional Ottoman island during the outbreak of the bubonic plague in the early 1900s. It's now out in the UK with Faber, and a marvelous review that I read in The Guardian this morning described it as one of the most interesting books the reviewer has read this year, and I would wholeheartedly concur with that assessment. Orhan, merhaba. Hello. Merhaba. Very pleased to be here. And I'm also as enthusiastic and excited as you are and hoping for interesting questions. Good, good, good. I'll try to do I'll try to do my best. So I have read that you started working on a plague novel before the pandemic was yes. declared. And many years first, I had the idea almost 40 years ago mm. and thought about writing a plague novel set in Ottoman medieval times. Um, and at that time, as I expressed it in my silent house, I was thinking that um, a sort of a essentialist distinction between East and West is based on individuality and Worrying about death before you get old is a sign of individuality, and that happens during a pandemic. Plague was not the subject, actually. Overabundance of death around, the atmosphere being surrounded by death and feeling trapped in it and making my characters speak about themselves in a historical novel. Then I delayed this. I thought I was too young to write. Then I was perhaps partly a bit under the influence of Edward Said Orientalism, and I have read, and this went into making of White Castle, and there are scenes of plague in my earlier book, White Castle, that all the Western travelers, the most important was Busbeck, noticed or observed or and had the illusion that these Muslims, Turks, Orientals, whatever you call them, do not take plague or epidemic very seriously, I mean, quarantine very seriously. Mm -hmm. And they would say, now that we are together, I shouldn't say this in Turkish, it's written in our forehead. God had our fate, had written already our fate and, and decided about us. So why do anything? Mm -hmm. For 20 years, I also told an Edward Saidian anti-fatalist book, but maybe that will not hold water, perhaps. Now I disagree. I agree with some of the comments of fatalism. Then I begin, the time was passing, I begin to read about the whole subject and came across the dominant epidemic in 19th century was cholera. And in, and in Russia, in, in Poland, there were cholera quarantine uprisings motivated to read more. And in Florence, in Renaissance, there were also bubonic plague um, uprisings against government. So that politicized my way of thinking. Why don't I have a political novel about and And people, governments get increasingly authoritarian as they want to stop the epidemics. And this was a time Erdogan was getting increasingly authoritarian. I said to myself, why don't I write a novel about plague implying allegorical novel and discussing generally really not pointing out to Erdogan or anyone uh, um, um, write a allegorical book about inevitability of repressive government or authoritarianism you've said so many things there that i want to come back to first fatalism versus non-fatalism and second the parallel between the spread of a virus and the spread of nationalism. But before we get there, I just want to orient our listeners a little bit. For those who haven't read the novel yet, it's set on a fictional island that is rife with sectarian divisions, religious, national, linguistic. And it's set in 1901, at the time when the Ottoman Empire was called by many the sick man of Europe, because it was losing its territories in the Balkans. It had lost Cyprus. It had lost Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. And it was also not modernized and did not have its own industry. Right. So why—you just said that you had thought about setting it in a medieval city, but you decided then to set it in 1901. Why this time? Why this place? Good question. Because then the subject of nationalism, decay of Ottoman Empire, disintegration of Ottoman system, you know, Ottoman history and the Ottoman identity is put on a pedestal by Recep Tayyip Erdogan. 
my take on it is that, well, yes, I also like Ottomans, but I like their decay. I like to find some melancholy and beauty in their decay. Also, don't forget that all these pashas, doctors, governors I described, my grandmother had photos of them in her house. Yes, my, mine too. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So it's, it's, it's not a very far away subject for me. And I wanted to also write about nationalism, comment on newly made nations, national states. So I thought I would have, and I was also very recently aware of third bubonic pandemic where the uh, bacteria was discovered. So I decided to set it in modern, almost modern times. Yeah, 1901 mm -hmm. is modern mm -hmm. and we have bubonic plague. Mm -hmm. And the way that the novel is narrated is, you know, in the preface, we are told by a narrator, by the narrator, that it is both a historical novel and a history written in the form of a novel. And throughout, there are all of these wonderful references to these faux historical documents, diaries, letters, etc. What is the difference for you between the way that history is narrated versus the way that a novel is oh, narrated? Of course. History Purpose, uh, the science of history, so to say, let's attribute science, word science to it. Science of history purports to be um, objective and represents the truth that there is no imagination involved. If Even if there is some imagination, our reliable historian is saying, I'm guessing here, I don't have clues or uh, documents to prove that my guess is this and suggests things. While War and Peace, the best of all the historical novels, we have Napoleon and my Tolstoy research, a whole read whole shelves of books about Napoleon and Russian generals, but he has Pierre and Andre, one of them, he wants to kill Napoleon and confronts. We read historical fiction to be able to go into history through the eyes of imaginary persons. We know it's fake. We know Andre does not exist. We know that island of Mingaria does not exist, but we are charmed probably thinking this Pamuk is a hard worker and he probably <laughs> researched all the details. The details of collapse of Ottoman bureaucracy is perhaps true, but then let's also enjoy his imagination. This is my ideal reader, by the way. There are so many formal features of the novel that reminded me a little bit of Camus' The Plague. So the withholding of the name of the narrator until the very end, that gap between the present pandemic that Camus was writing about and when he actually said it. Was that on your mind as you were Probably writing? Probably 40 years ago, Camus' novel triggered me, but I'm correct. I teach that at Columbia University as a political novel, but not a novel about epidemics. Mm. That my critique, uh, for me, the best novel about plague is Daniel Defoe's The Journal of the Plague Year. The second one, which I quoted in uh, as an epigraph, is Alexandro Manzoni's The Betrothed. I always ask my Italian friends, have you read it? It's so, sort of an Italian war and peace. And they always say, only the plague parts. They might, <laughs> it's just 30 pages. But here and there, he did what I tried to do in this novel. He read all the documents. The, the events take place 150 years before he wrote. It's a real historical novel. And he narrated in 1665 Milano plague in all its realism. While, yes, Camus inspired me 40 years ago with his mm -hmm. plague, but he did, he did not care about details of plague or did not report about the actuality of imposition of quarantine. When I was writing this novel, I always wanted to say the best three plague novels are these, Daniel Defoe, Alessandro Manzoni, Albert Camus, and, and I wanted to add, fantasizing one day my book will be published. You know, all of these writers never experienced plague, but they wrote the best plague novels. Mm. And I would humbly say, I want to be the fourth one. But I couldn't because coronavirus came and I lived in, in uh, I experienced mm. pandemic. And in fact, I immediately realized that I'm so scared that my, my characters are not scared as much as I am while coronavirus kills one in 100, plague mm. only killed one in mm. three. Well, a plague or an epidemic or a pandemic being an excuse for the additional concentration of authoritarian energy 
is a concern that was raised early on in COVID by a number of philosophers who were then dismissed for that point of view. But I don't think that's at all an unreasonable claim to yes, make. Yes, of course. I have modestly read something about both books, mm. fiction, literature, and PhDs. So many people made wrote PhDs about plague in Florence, plague here, that. Um, and I can conclude that humanity wants two things simultaneously. They both, you government, probably you bought it, and conspiratory terrorists, probably you're in hand in hand with Muslims, Jews, Christians, next um, next village, next nation. Please stop it. And if you don't stop it, I'm going to get a price. Mm. And the, the same person, even the same person next may say, oh, by the way, don't stop my business. Don't just close my shop. Right. These are demands impossible to satisfy by any government. Mm. And all governments, including the Turkish, did a sort of a slalom. They maneuvered as the numbers went up, they closed, mm -hmm. as the numbers went down, and they opened up. When in 2020, March, I was in New York, and Trump was saying, showing us Bible, and the churches, churches will be open, and it will pass in April, he said. One day I flew, I'm now back in my desk in Jihangir, Istanbul, next to me is Jihangir Mosque. On it, there was a paper written by Erdogan, mm. the Islamists who say all the mosques are closed because of coronavirus. I go, I went down and read it. It's one sentence, one paper, and no one criticized. You may say because of lack of free speech, or that you may also argue that secularism went into the um, blood of the nation. Even the most Islamist behaves like a, a ultra secularist, and he opened up afterwards, realizing that he is losing votes. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? To what degree or how much can our beliefs survive a crisis like a plague or Probably a Probably. That is yeah. best illustrated. That's why I wanted to write 40 years ago plague novel right. that the most um, standard important description of plague situation is, what do we romanticize and put on a pedestal? A mother. And what is a mother? A person who sacrifices her life for the children. But in plague situations, a mother stop being mother and try to save their, with the shock of the children and the family, try to save their own lives. While in 1665, if there is someone at home with plague, British government was nailing them to their homes, right. to their doors. Right. I think you do that quite brilliantly. I think as the novel progresses and as Mingaria descends into what you describe as plague anarchy, mm -hmm. you see that, the complete undoing of all pre-existing political and social and economic economic relations. I want to shift gears a little bit. So there's also a kind of subplot to the novel of a detective story, a series of murders that need to be solved. And there's a constant reference in a quite comical way, I think, to Sherlock Holmes and his procedures. That is first based on, there are so many books about it, yeah. a real fact that Sultan Abdul Hamid, the ruler of Turkey for almost more than 30 years, perhaps quite like Queen Victoria, because he, he covered so many years and also modernized Turkey in many ways, not in politically, was addicted to reading first French detective novels, and then he discovered Sherlock Holmes and read and translate. And he had his common translators giving him and reading at night. There are many books about Abdul Hamik and Sherlock Holmes in Turkey. Mm -hmm. and it's a common subject, and everyone knows about it. And it perfectly fits with his paranoid character. And also, one of his secretaries used to read it. Then there is a paravan between Abdul Hamid's bed and the reader, and the reader after a while notices that the caliph of all the Muslims is snoring and falling asleep and she stops reading. So he was listening to um, detective stories, treating them as a sort of a lullaby or a fairy tale rather than his horrors, but maybe he enjoyed horrors. Mm -hmm. 